Good morning, dear church. It's times like these and tragedies like these that we are wondering what is the most appropriate thing to do in a service. The temptation is, or the tearing is between do we change and alter everything to match the specific situation, or do we trust the Holy Spirit has gone ahead of us as He always does and has prepared us long in advance for what we would need on this day. We've been talking about the grooves that God cuts in us four times just like this. So we've chosen mostly in this service to continue in the same grooves, continuing the same patterns praising Him, confessing sin, waiting on His pardoning grace, even allowing the children to make us laugh. Tonight we'll dedicate most of the service, we'll focus the service on, on uh, an extended lament and meditation from His Word. And we are going to continue in our study of the book of Amos. But before I turn to that passage, chapter 3 of Amos, I want to give you a few pastoral guidelines, instructions I hope that help in times of tragedy like we are experiencing. What do you do? When I heard the news, I turned to Lamentations, among other passages of Scripture, because our Father gives us in His Word the words that we need to express our feelings even if they sound irreverent so that we will turn immediately to His knee. I went to Lamentations. I'm not going to turn you there but just reference you there to look at it perhaps later. Lamentations 3 in particular. I thought of that book because here is a prophet trying to speak to a whole people who have been taken captive. And they're wondering, how can this be fair, and how can God be God, and this happen to us? And uh, Jeremiah gives us uh, a few uh, pointers, some guidelines for what to do in times of tragedy. One is that we, that we pour out our feelings to the Lord. The whole first part of Lamentations 3 is is Jeremiah complaining to the Lord, how could you do this? I feel like you have skinned me alive. You have put gravel in my mouth. He speaks that way to the Lord. He tells the Lord exactly how he feels. Many such passages in the Bible, Psalm 44, Psalm 88, Habakkuk 2, Martha when she met the Lord and she said, if you had been here, this would not have happened. And the Lord didn't correct her. He welcomed her feelings. Pour out your feelings. Another thing that we do, according to Jeremiah's example, is to repeat the faith of our fathers. That's what we've done this morning. In the middle of that Lamentations 3, he said... The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
Jeremiah repeated a creed he had heard since he was a youth, and surely one that he didn't at the moment feel like repeating. But he did it because he knew it had been proven by time to be true and had been passed down to him by his fathers and mothers in the faith. What do we do in times of tragedy? We repeat the faith of our fathers as I've heard you this morning singing, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and and, uh, repeating the Lord's Prayer, singing, praying the faith of our fathers. Third thing I'd say we must do according to Jeremiah's example is pray fervently for the peace of the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for that now. We're praying for mercy. We're praying for peace for our family, for these family members who have been so uh, victimized by evil. And Jeremiah, by his example in Jeremiah 29, we often talk about shalom and We learn that from Jeremiah 29 when he tells his people to pray for the shalom or the peace of God to come on the Babylonians, not just on the people of God, but to the whole city. This, as last week as well, urged us to feel compassion for our city. This helps us feel even more poignantly the pain of our city for whom such tragedies are in some parts of our city a weekly occurrence, a monthly occurrence. There are some people in our congregation, some members of our staff, for whom such tragedies are normative in their weekly and monthly lives. We pray for mercy on the family of faith here. We pray for mercy on the, on the Fletchers and the Welfords and We pray for mercy on the family of Miracle Cooper who was, didn't come home from school the same day Liza disappeared and many others in our city. We pray with new empathy and fervency, fervently praying, bring peace, O Lord, King Jesus, make wrong right. And then I'd say we, we rest in the faithfulness of our Savior who prays this way for us. He prays uh, with, with urgency to his Father. He still feels our pain. He suffered in every way as we do. He, he is the faith of our fathers. It is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever that we can repeat the faith of our Father, and He still prays for us. We remember another brother whom we lost in this congregation not that long ago, Tim Russell, who every time he invited us to pray would say, let us join our Savior who is already at prayer. Jesus is praying for us and sends his spirit to intercede for us with groans too deep for words when we do not know what to pray. Well, let's 
continue with defiant faith and turn the page in our regular study of the minor prophets, however briefly, to Amos chapter 3, which you'll find on the page uh, denoted for you in the bulletin, page 765 in the Pew Bible, Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I'll punish for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing uh, without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They don't know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds Therefore says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued." They'll be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bear. Hear and testify, therefore, against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I'll strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold the things that we need in this hour. This hour of suffering, we pray that we would behold exactly what we need. According to your Spirit's wisdom, in Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said together, amen. When my kids were little, we lived in St. Louis. They have a great zoo, as you know. Occasionally, they would open the zoo at night, and you would get to see the animals that you didn't typically see during the day. You didn't see the animals at night that you typically saw in the day. And one of the animals that you saw in the day, but he was always sleeping, was the lion. One evening, we went into the park, into the zoo. Soon after entering the gates, the lion roared. 
It shook the place. It seemed like everything in the, in the park was reverberating. It stopped everyone in their tracks. It was haunting. It was terrifying. It was beautiful. We, you can understand from that experience the significance of a lion's mighty roar and why the lion is called the king, the king of the pride, all the boundaries of his lion's tribe. What does that lion's roar mean? Well, to those who are in the pride, the pack of lions, it tells them these are the boundaries. If you can still hear my voice strongly, you are within the boundaries. Uh, uh, fellow lions can hear that call up to 20 miles away. We can only hear it five miles away. It marks the boundaries. It also warns all of the enemies who would come into the territory, I'm the king here, and you're going to suffer damage if you try to do ill to my area. It assures those back home that uh, he may be across uh, 20 miles away, but he is on his way back. It, it warns those who are wandering away, don't go any farther. You'll be outside of my protection. And then it says to the weakest and the most vulnerable of the pack of the pride, I'm the king and I rule this land. Why does the lion roar in Amos 3? Why did he roar? Why has he roared in the other, in two other places we've studied already, the book of Joel? Why does the lion roar? Because the lion is that lion which is coming, who is coming, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, described in Revelation 5, verse 5. We've studied Revelation. We've studied that book about the king who wins. He's introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5 because he is the one who is only, he and the only one who is able to open the seals. And we understood that those seals on those scrolls, each of them, is a repetition of the one before. It is the same picture over and over again. The seal is the final judgment and the king is announcing no matter what you're experiencing in this day, what trials, what tragedies, what disappointments, what sufferings, you are coming to a day as the followers of King Jesus when Jesus will put all things right as the king, the lion of the king of Judah. In the meantime, he woos us back to himself if we're wandering. He calls us to, to live very closely to him and to respond appropriately. Let me show you how that unfolds in this passage, beginning, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. Two points. We are to respond to his passionate love with passionate love, and we are to imitate that passionate love with sacrificial service. Now, where do we get that idea that 
Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this one who speaks so sternly to the people of Judah in this passage, where do we get that He passionately loves us? It's in verses 1 and 2. Let me show you again in case you missed it. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Remember, the pagan gods, those despotic, capricious idols never warned those followers that judgment was coming. It just came. But here is our Savior warning us, hear me, the word I've spoken to you, it's always a call to return against the whole family. I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Remember, he says, I am the one who redeemed you. I called you by name. I defeated those gods who held you in captivity. I've led you into the promised land. Verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, that word known, that word known in Hebrew, yadah, Y-A-D-A, is pregnant with God's love. It is that word that God uses to describe His love that He sets on His people before the foundation of the world. Those whom I have foreknown, I have called, I have redeemed, I have justified, I have glorified. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. This is not a word that refers to mere awareness. I've known, I've known of you, I'm aware of you, I'm acquainted with you of all the families of the earth. No, we could say this word says, I have chosen you in love. Out of all the families of the earth, I have set my love on you. Why is God so angry? Why is, he so, why is He so passionate when His people are walking away from Him? It is because He's married to them. He's married to us. He's jealous for our love. And He's jealous in His protection of us. Yes, protective of us when he sees us wandering disobediently uh, into, into danger, but protective of us too when the enemies beset us, furious when the sin and evil and fallenness of this world affects his people. This is the Savior who at the tomb of Lazarus, the man, his friend, he knew he was going to raise from the dead. This is our Savior who wept at that tomb, not because he didn't know what to do, not because he was despairing. He wept at that tomb. He wept with anger at that tomb because he saw what sin and the devil's evil brought on the people he loved, on his Father's good creation. How do you respond to that passionate love? You respond with passionate love, but how do you respond with passionate love when you don't feel passionate? How do you rewarm love? 
You, you rewarm love by going back to verses like this in verses one and two and remembering the grace that Jesus has brought to us, the lion of the tribe of Judah has brought to us who left his father's throne and, and sought us, took on flesh in order to seek and to save that which was lost. That one who came to die in the place of those who previously were his enemies. We remember grace. It should warm our hearts. We also recognize reality. That's in verses 3 through 11. Why does he mention all of these things like, does a lion roar in the forest when there is no prey? Of course he doesn't, only when there is prey. When, does, a, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth and there, when there is no trap on it? No, these things, these are cause and effects. These, these are regular uh, events, phenomena that can be counted on. What is he saying with these kind of strange little examples? He's saying that God created the world to work in a certain way. And even after its fall, he continues to maintain it generally according to its course. And the best, wisest way to live is in dependence on him and in obedience to him. You say, well, what if it doesn't work? I have tried to live the way he tells me to live, and still tragedies happen, disappointments happen. Yes, they do, and that is, that is the reason the, the Jesus uh, weeps with us still. This world is not what it is supposed to be, but in the meantime, look at the comfort we have that the world is without. You count it to you, perhaps because you've been a Christian for a long time. It's just a natural thing. You come here on Sunday morning and you worship with God's people. But do you realize how many people in this city and around this world are by themselves today? And they read the news and they hear the disturbing reports and they're by themselves and they say, what, what comfort is there possibly in this world? They don't have a Bible to turn to. They don't have prophets revealing the mind of the Lord to them. There were people in this sanctuary yesterday who had never gone to church, who didn't even know how to pray. And they saw in you the way God intended us to live with each other, in sweet communion, in reliance on the teachings and the principles of God's Word. We don't know. We can't understand so much. There's so much mystery involved with suffering and, and tragedy. But in those times when we don't know, when there's plenty that we don't know, we rest on what we do know, like the gospel repeated to us in worship. One other thing in terms of rewarming passionate love, and that is to rest in the shepherd's rescuing love. Verse 12, he tells us he has this rather severe image of a shepherd uh, who rescues uh, from a lion's mouth portions of a sheep. While it didn't turn out so well for that sheep, God has different news for his people. He says, though you will be, though you will be tried, this people, the, in, in view in this 
verse or in rebellion against the Lord. And he said, even though you are in rebellion, I am still your shepherd, and I'm coming after you with my, not just my staff, but my rod. And my rod in my hand, though it will hurt, though it will be severe, my rod will rescue you. I'll rescue a remnant. The point is that we have a good shepherd. A shepherd who is not just good when he feels good, but he's good to us when it feels like we're being eaten by the devil who roams about seeking whom he may devour. We have a good shepherd who even when he disciplines us for our wandering ways is good to us. That should rewarm our love. Well, we can't leave this passage without looking at verse 10 and verses 13 to 15 when, when uh, Amos leans into the particular sins of the people of Judah, or people of Israel, sorry, that, that nation to the north, the northern tribes of Israel. And remember, we've already learned that uh, what he is confronting is their materialism. That though they have, they've, they've been given peace around their borders, they've been given respite from Assyria for a time, and, and it's allowed their economy to boom. But instead of sharing with those in need, the rich have become richer and the poor have become poorer. Archaeologists tell us that, that in the 10th century, 200 years before this was written, in the 10th century, all the houses in Israel were roughly the same size. But at the time of Amos' writing, 25% of the houses had become very large, and people had added summer homes to their winter homes, as alluded to in verse 15. 25% of the homes had become much, much bigger and had multiplied into multiple homes. And 25% of the homes had become much, much smaller. And the prophet leans in to these whom God has blessed materially, and he calls them to respond to God's graciousness with generosity rather than selfishness. Well, what, what is the application for us in terms of the physical, material, or spiritual blessings we've been given. They are given in order to be given away. We've learned uh, as we've studied these prophets, we'll talk a lot about poverty, that poverty is any broken relationship. Poverty is any relationship than it, that is less than the wholeness God has designed for it. So material poverty, which is much in view in the minor prophets, material poverty is a less than whole relationship with the creation. Spiritual poverty is a less than whole relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Emotional poverty is a less than whole relationship with self and relational poverty is a less than whole relationship with others. In any one of those categories, there are rich among us, and there are poor. 
In every one of those categories, there are poor among us in this city. And the, 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 the question is not, it's not helpful to talk about, to, to uh, talk about privilege versus, versus uh, destitution, though that was at one time perhaps a helpful conversation. Here is what is helpful to talk about. It's to talk about need and resources. And we can think about it this way, like Jesus when He was faced with the feeding the 5,000. Jesus saw the great need over that, uh, that area of land where He was teaching, and they were hungry. And the disciples said, what are we going to do about all of this need? And He said, well, give them something to eat, which was a test because they didn't have enough. So they, they, they turned around and saw, looked at what they had. And what Andrew noticed was that there was a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. And he would, could have been tempted to think, this is nothing compared to the need. But he handed it to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it. The, the, the need that we face in our congregation or the needs that we face in our city of all kinds, emotional, material, relational uh, with the creation. It's not a time for us to say, well, they should have done better or don't make me feel guilty for that. Instead, it is to say, Lord, here is the need. What resources have you given to me that I can return to you and watch them multiply? You know what Jonathan Edwards called that? He called it gospel logic. Not exactly that, but a form of that. That's the, that's the idea, gospel logic. How do, we, how do we reason according to the gospel? And in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, he said, uh, we, we, it's just this simple, that if Jesus sacrificed riches in order to make us spiritual riches in order to make us spiritually rich, to, to answer our spiritual poverty, then we must, whenever we encounter any kind of poverty, must ask, what kind of resources has God given me that I could give to them to show my gratitude to Jesus? So we, we don't ask, um, we don't make excuses like, uh, well, I don't have anything to spare. Jesus could have made that argument. We don't say, well, that person, wouldn't be, uh, that person wouldn't be destitute if they hadn't done that to themselves. What if Jesus had said, I'll only come, Lord, Father, I'll come and die for those who are worthy of it, who have gotten the, have, haven't gotten themselves in any kind of fix? If, what if our excuse is it's unpleasant to move towards suffering, to move toward those whose hearts are breaking, to move toward those who are... Who are who are unstable, to move toward those who are hungry. I, Lord, that makes, me, it, that makes me uncomfortable. What if Jesus had said that about us? Instead, we turn to Jesus and say, I don't know what to do, but here are the resources you've given me. Multiply them. I don't know how to comfort somebody in tragedy, but I have a phone I can write a letter, I can show up, I don't know what I'm going to say, but take whatever I do and use it, multiply it.
I don't know how one, why my one effort in this part of town can make any difference, but I, I don't know how my efforts in, in tutoring someone to read can somehow contribute to, to stopping violence in our city. But here, is my, here, is, here are my loaves and fishes. Multiply them. Someday, we'll see the completed picture. We'll stand in heaven and, and Jesus will, will say, the sheep stand over here, the goats stand over there. And the sheep will be distinguished as these. When I was hungry, you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you, you came to me. And the sheep with the humility that the Spirit gives will say, when did we ever see you like that? And Jesus will say, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. And it's clear in that passage in Matthew 25, it's clear in that passage that he's not saying, okay, I'm going to keep score. And when you've done enough of those good things, you will earn heaven. No, that can't be the case. Because Jesus says in the passage that um, come, you who have been blessed by my Father. The only reason those sheep have done those things is because they have been blessed by the Father. They have been called. They're, his love has been set on them. And he has enabled them to do those, those acts of kindness. And then he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. The inheritance prepared for you in advance. That's not, a, that's not a quid pro quo. That's not a meritocracy. That's not as I'm going to reward you when you do something. That is, I am preparing your inheritance before you're even born. That's, the, that's what happens. That's what, 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 what will be the story of those who in every need and tragedy turn to the Lord and say, I don't know what to do, but here is what you've given me. Multiply it. The hymn that we sang in preparation for the sermon was maybe unfamiliar to some of you. I hope it becomes more familiar. It's written by Anna Cousins, but it's, it, was, it was written based on the letters of a Scottish reformer named Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford was only a pastor for a short time, and so it's not his sermons that we have, it's his letters. And, and his letters, devotional reading you can find in the bookstore, his letters that have endured since 1660, letters written in prison because, because he was preaching the gospel, he was taken captive and put in prison taken away from his family and his congregation. And yet he, all he could do was write letters. He knew what it was to be a recipient of God's tender mercies. He was a star student in Edinburgh until his girlfriend got pregnant. It was very humiliating, of course. He was kicked out of school. He married Euphem, his wife, and cared for her until her 
death. He was still called. He was, he was rooted in the gospel that he had been introduced to in college. And so he finished his university studies eventually. He went into parish ministry. And with a heart made tender, with that kind of, of, that kind of brokenness, he preached for the brief time he could, and then the rest of the time he wrote letters. And what made his letters so attractive is, is the language that seemed so inappropriate for the day. The, the language that he used to describe his relationship with the Lord. He talked about God's Word like God's love letters, love tokens, love banquets, love looks, love blinks, love sickness, love beds, and love grips. It was too much for Victorians. One Victorian critic said, unpruned lusciousness, gush of emotion, and frequent tone of rapture are not acceptable. Rutherford became known as an affectionate theologian and appreciated Jesus' everlasting huggings and embracings. And so from his letter, one of his letters, look back at your bulletin, page 5. These lines are composed of lines from his letters. And this is the line I want you to, to see, the last one, the last stanza. The bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. He's saying, when the midnight, which is dark, dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is ahead, the morning star, our beloved, the day is coming when our Christ will be revealed to us in glory. And we won't look at our crowns and we won't look at his gifts. We will only see his face. And the Lamb of God, also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, will enrapture us because He will have made all things right. He will have opened the last seal with the martyrs and others who are crying out for justice, and He will satisfy all justice and heal every pain and wipe away every tear. And the Lamb, the Lamb who has visited you this morning, who will visit you this evening in the Lord's Supper, the Lamb of God will be all the glory in Emmanuel's land, the God who is with us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus. We say to you, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lift up our heads. Comfort our hearts. And we pray for the shalom of Memphis. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.